Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, there's a headline in my news feed a few years ago that sounded as improbable as it was shocking. Uh, it, re- it read like this, man murders former classmate after holding 50-year grudge. 73-year-old Carl Erickson from Watertown, South Dakota was sentenced to life in prison He was 73. After admitting to the murder of his former high school classmate. In January of 2012, Erickson rang the doorbell at Norman Johnson's home, asked his old classmate to verify his identity after answering the door, and then shot Johnson twice in the face with a 45 caliber pistol. Back in high school, Erickson was the student manager, and Johnson was a track star on the track team. According to Erickson's courtroom confession, on one occasion, Johnson put a jock strap on Erickson's head in the locker room, humiliating him and planting a seed of resentment that would grow for over half a century. In the years that followed, Norman Johnson continued to outshine Carl Erickson. Johnson went on to play football at Augustana College. He earned a bachelor's degree, later received a master's degree from South Dakota State University, and then returned to his high school to teach and coach for the next 30 years. So he was beloved in the community, had coached generations of kids, Whereas Erickson, on the other hand, had a quieter career, did not go off to college. Instead, he just had a modest career as an insurance salesman, and he was married to his own wife for 44 years. No one saw any signs of this happening. Relatives of Erickson said it just seemed like he snapped. The story of a 73-year-old man settling a 50-year-old grudge is a sobering reminder that if we don't apply the balm of God's word to our wounds, we too will be tempted to take justice into our own hands. Jesus knows this as well, which is why he told the story we're going to be looking at today. We're going to continue our series in the parables of Jesus, or through the parables of Jesus, called Once Upon a Time, If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 18 and take out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder you received. A parable, you might remember, is an earthly story packed with a heavenly truth. The Lord loved to use stories during his earthly ministry uh, to transform black and white truths into high-definition color. Uh, One very relevant topic that he knows we all struggle with is forgiveness. I've got a lot of helpful content to share with you this morning, and you might have noticed that the outline is quite full, Uh, so I want to encourage you to take notes today. I'm going to share a lot of things that I have learned over the years in my own research as I've struggled with the issue of forgiveness myself. And so let's jump right in. Here's the big idea today from the parable we're going to be looking at, and it's simply this. The Lord forgives repentant sinners who forgive repentant sinners. The Lord forgives repentant sinners who forgive repentant sinners. There is a lot of inaccurate, misleading teaching in the world about forgiveness. And this is a very sensitive subject, so that uh, stirs my fires even more and gets me a little 
pastorally angry, if I can say that, when I see bad teaching on the topic because I know how it will affect people's hearts. Tragically, the world's teaching on forgiveness is infiltrating the church as well. Many churches have adapted or adopted, excuse me, a worldview on forgiveness that is worldly. Thus, many churches and Christian authors today are using the same cliches the world does, such as, just forgive and forget. Uh, Time heals all wounds. Or, uh, you need to forgive yourself. Or, forgiveness sets you free and it'll help you feel better. You need to forgive that other person for you. Jesus told this parable in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, so that we would learn to not withhold forgiveness from those who have repented or apologized for their sin. And so let's look at Matthew 18 together, uh, verses 21 to 22. I'm going to read. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Here's the first point on your outline about forgiveness, and that is uh, people need unlimited forgiveness from us just as we need it from the Lord. People need unlimited forgiveness from us just as we need it from the Lord. Now, I want to give you some context here. It's really important so that we can accurately interpret this parable that we're about to wade into. Uh, Peter was probably asking this question because Jesus had just finished teaching on how to resolve conflict biblically in verses 15 to 17. Uh, every Christ follower should know Matthew 18, 15 to 17. You've heard me teach on it before, but it is where Jesus uh, lays out the steps for resolving conflict between two believers. If you want to hear more detailed teaching on that, or what I sometimes would call the, it's the front end of biblical peacemaking, uh, I've got two messages that I've preached on Matthew 18, 15 to 17 listed on the back side of your sermon notes near the bottom. Uh, if you're listening online and you don't have the sermon notes, those two messages are Walking in Love Part 2 from the Authentic Walk series in 1 John and The Joy of Making Peace from the Outrageous Joy series in Philippians. Both those are online and on our podcast. Now, notice in verse 21, Peter says, How often, Lord? As many as seven times? Peter was most likely looking back at verse 15 and concerned that verse 15 will repeat itself over and over and over again. You see it there in your Bibles if you just glance up at the previous paragraph. That's where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Meaning, uh, if he listens uh, and, and repents, then forgive him. So Peter may have been thinking, now, now, Lord, what if I have a brother who keeps sinning against me, and I keep forgiving him, and he keeps sinning against me, and I keep forgiving him, and he keeps sinning against me, and I keep forgiving him, and so on and so forth. How, how many times, Lord, do I have to do that? Now, here's a little bit of interesting background information that is helpful Another reason Peter was asking this question is that there was a common rabbinic teaching taught in the first century that Peter would have been aware of that could be summarized like this. Rabbis would teach this. If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he can be forgiven, but the fourth, no more. So that tells us why Peter asked seven times? So, so Jewish rabbis probably taught this, my guess, is that they taught it so that offenders would take their repentance seriously and not take advantage or abuse their victims' willingness to forgive. 
Thus, Peter probably felt very generous going, hmm, I grew up being taught I have to forgive three times, up to three times. How about I throw seven out to the Lord? That's more than double, I think. So, so Jesus, though, as he often does, well, I'm sorry, I take that back. Peter, as he often does, and then Jesus does something he often does, Peter probably thinks he's going to impress the Lord again with a profound insight of, hey, man, I'm, I'm willing to go up to seven times, even though the rabbis told me all the years I was growing up, I only had to forgive up to three. But Jesus sees that, and he comes right back at Peter with another one of those counter-cultural curveballs that is really hard to hit, and really painful to watch. And Jesus says, 77 times. Some Bible translations render this 70 times 7. Either translation is accurate and would suffice. 70 times 7 meaning 490 times. Jesus was not getting into math here. He was not asking us to keep track of how many times we've forgiven someone. Instead, the point he's trying to make is this. No Christ follower can put a limit on how often he or she will forgive because no Christ follower will have to forgive more than they've been forgiven. That's one of the major points in this passage. I'll say it again. The Lord was trying to tell Peter, doesn't matter the number, because no Christ follower can put a limit on how often he or she will forgive, because no Christ follower will have to forgive more than they've been forgiven. And Jesus drives this point home even further with the ensuing parable. Uh, but before we unpack this parable, I need to establish some essential truths about forgiveness so that we can interpret it properly. Uh, we need to understand what the Lord means by forgiveness uh, so that we understand what he's saying when he says, forgive him, Peter. Now, notice in your text in verse 21 where Peter asks, how often must I forgive him. The Greek word for forgive that's used here is used throughout the New Testament to literally mean to release, to let go, or to pardon. Again, it means to release, to let go, or to pardon. It's something the victim does for the offender, not for themselves. Nowhere in the scriptures is it taught that the victim should forgive to make themselves feel better. Now, you see there on your sermon note handout, there's a cross-reference to Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus elaborates on what he's saying in Matthew 18 a little more in Luke 17. And for the sake of time, I'll just show it to you on the keynote screen behind me. Uh, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So notice seven times in one day being sinned against with somebody. I don't know, some of you are probably thinking, yeah, that just happened to me yesterday. <clears throat> Not going to name any names. But, but notice though, Seven times being sinned against, seven instances of repentance. Also, I want you to notice here that forgiveness is only to be granted if there is repentance. The clause used here in the original text of Luke 17.3 
where it says, if he repents, it's what New Testament Greek scholars call a third-class conditional. It means Jesus is saying, if this happens, then this can happen. If this happens, then that can happen. But there has to be this first. So there's, there's nothing lost in the English translation here. I, I got down beneath the surface. I want to really verify this in the Greek text. Is that what it's really saying? In fact, in fact, there's a little more, and this is why Greek is so fascinating, because it gets into, it says so much more than what English can say. Not only does it mean, if this happens, then that can happen, it's also categorized by Greek scholars as a third-class conditional because Jesus is describing a probable future, not a guaranteed one. In other words, the receiving of forgiveness is dependent on the offender repenting, but there's no guarantee they will repent. So, so Jesus is saying, it won't always happen. It's probable if you go and point out their sin to them lovingly, directly, clearly, but it won't always happen. There's no guarantee. Now, next we need to establish a biblical definition for forgiveness because if we don't understand that, it's going to be hard for us to know what Jesus is talking about in this parable. So here's a biblical definition for forgiveness, I want to encourage you to fill in the blanks here uh, on this definition, and I want to encourage you to learn it. Forgiveness in the scriptures is a decision to release a repentant person from the moral liability of their sin and a commitment to be reconciled to them. It's a decision to release a repentant person from the moral liability of their sin and a commitment to be reconciled to them. Now this, uh, again, my, my pastoral ire got uh, fired up last night as I was doing some research on this and I, I hit a couple different blog pages and one well-known Christian magazine had a blog post from somebody who was saying, forgiveness does not include reconciliation, to which I blew a head gasket and went, hello, there's nowhere in scripture where forgiveness happens but no reconciliation. And certainly the Lord doesn't do that. Hey, uh, I'll forgive you, but I don't want to be reconciled with you so you can have eternal life or a relationship with me. But I just forgive you. Nowhere. Forgiveness and reconciliation go together. They go together. So there's no examples I can find anywhere where God forgives someone, but he doesn't reconcile with them either. Now this is important because our definition of forgiveness needs to be rooted in the gospel. It needs to be rooted in the gospel. Because when we repent of sin, and when we transact forgiveness, we reenact the gospel. And that brings glory to the Lord. So, it needs to be rooted in the gospel since it's also through the gospel that many of us have received forgiveness from the Lord. Now, in his landmark, excuse me, landmark book on biblical conflict resolution called The Peacemaker, author Ken Sandy further clarifies what forgiveness should look like when it is transacted. And he asserts it should manifest or sort of play out with four promises. Four promises. So here's A, B, and C in your outline. And D. Uh, letter A. When you say, I forgive you, when you grant forgiveness to somebody because they've said, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, will you please forgive me? A. You are promising, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this incident. Meaning, I promise I am not going to replay the offense over and over in my head like an analyst on Monday Night Football. So I can stay mad at you. Instead, I'm going to take thoughts captive, 2 Corinthians 10.5, and I'm going to lead my emotions instead of letting them lead me. Next, the second promise of forgiveness. Uh, Ken Sandy says, let her be, 
you should commit to not bringing it up again or using it against them. I will not bring it up again or use it against you. Forgiveness is a commitment to not bring up the offense again so you can use it again in the future when it's convenient for you. Uh, the, the, the Lord doesn't do that with us, and he doesn't want us doing that to each other. Now, the Lord, it's important to clarify, he doesn't expect us to forget the offense because that's most of the time not possible. Uh, we've been wired to remember the, the heights and de- depths of emotions. So anything that causes great emotion in our life, whether it be positive or negative, our brains are wired to remember it pretty well, uh, very well, actually. So uh, instead, when the scriptures talk about the Lord remembering our sins no more, what it's actually saying is he's not going to bring up our sin anymore. You see, because if, if the Lord could forget our sin literally and block it out of his mind, that would mean he lost his omniscience. And that's not possible. Because he sees all things and knows all things. And forgetting is something that humans do. It's not something God does. He never forgets. So he's not going to bring it up again. Letter C, the the third promise. I will not talk to others about it. Oh, that's important. Mm, That is important. Because there are people who say, oh yeah, I forgive you. Yeah. Yeah, we're good. And then they go tell everybody else what you did. So, so thus, it's saying, I promise not to tell the kids, my coworkers, my mother, the next door neighbor, my third cousin in Louisiana, what you did. So that I can build a coalition of people who will make you pay for what you did to me, even though I've forgiven you. But they'll harbor it for me and make you pay. That's, that's not forgiveness. And then letter D, Sandy says, the fourth promise of forgiveness is, I will not let this stand between us or hinder our relationship. Or hinder our relationship. Depending on the type of offense, things may not return to normal right away because trust needs to be rebuilt, but there should be progress. Progress should begin again. The relationship should restart And again, depending on the sin, it may take time to rebuild trust, especially if there was a deep betrayal that took place. Now, there may be times in which you're not sure or I'm not sure whether we've actually forgiven someone. That's that's something I've I've been asked before by people I counsel. Um, You know, I'm not sure whether I've forgiven or not. In these cases, the four promises of forgiveness are helpful to know because they can help you discern whether you have forgiven somebody. So, for example... If you're still bringing up the offense or you're still talking to other people about it, then you haven't forgiven them. You still have some business to do. Now, the biblical model for forgiveness demonstrated by Jesus in the gospel is radically different than what the world teaches. The world preaches a cheap, unconditional forgiveness that is self-centered and totally focused on feelings. Worldly forgiveness, in essence, says, stop feeling resentment over that sin, and you don't have to be reconciled to the person who hurt you. You don't even have to talk to them ever again. You can just ice them, kick them way out of the friend zone, just block them on social media, but don't tell them why. You can do all sorts of things. But so long as you just say you forgave them and you feel better about it, that's good. That's what the world teaches. It's, not, it's just you choosing not to let the offense bother you anymore, but this creates several problems. First of all, cheap worldly forgiveness doesn't require the victim to confront the offender with their sin, like Jesus has said in Matthew 18 which in turn doesn't require the offender to actually take responsibility for the sin and deal with it. It doesn't then satisfy the demands of justice 
Worldly forgiveness doesn't require either party to reconcile, so they both have broken relationships laying around their lives. It doesn't match how God forgives, and he invented forgiveness. Let's face it, it wasn't man's idea. And therefore, it actually doesn't bring healing to our souls. But that's the lie the world tries to tell us. So, forgiving the unrepentant or not forgiving the repentant are both outside of God's character. Neither reenact the gospel. Now, I'll get back to bitterness in a little bit and how to deal with that. But the Lord forgives, again, our big idea, the Lord forgives repentant sinners who forgive repentant sinners. Now, as we read this parable in the remaining verses in Matthew 18, please pay special attention to the themes of forgiveness and justice. I want you to watch for those, okay? Let's read verses 23 to 27. So, Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Here's number two on your outline. The Lord offers unlimited forgiveness for our spiritual bankruptcy. The Lord offers unlimited forgiveness for our spiritual bankruptcy. To be bankrupt means that a person is unable to pay outstanding debts. The word, interestingly, comes from a medieval Latin term which means bank broken, literally. That's how the Lord sees all sinners apart from Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we have accumulated a sin debt that is too great for us to pay back. And this is very cleverly illustrated by the Lord uh, in his choice of terms here. Notice in your text in verse 24, I I underlined this in my Bible, 10,000 talents. And I underlined it because a talent was a monetary unit weighed in gold, silver or copper, excuse me, with gold obviously being the most expensive. The value of the talent depended on the metal. Most commentators believe the talent being referred to here, and get this, you got, you, you got to write this down, this is good, so cue the pens. Most commentators believe 10,000 talents in verse 24 is about 20 years wages. 20 years. 20 years wages for a manual laborer. Now that's important when we get to the next part of the story, so don't forget that. If we multiply that by 10,000, you get a sense of the staggering debt this gentleman had racked up. One commentator suggests a dollar value of $12 million, but with inflation and fluctuating precious metal prices, this could be over a billion dollars in today's currency. So so Jesus is telling this story. He's got a point he's going to make. And the first master and the servant, the servant is... Way buried in debt. Massive. It's like he's in debt more than somebody won the lottery. Like more than that amount. Now I want you to notice though, as we talked about the relationship between repentance and forgiveness, notice, and here's letter A 
on your outline, the servant acknowledged his debt. The servant acknowledged his debt. In verse 26, it says, the servant fell on his knees imploring him. The original language uses the imperfect tense, which means it was a continual imploring. So you don't see the servant arguing with the master about the debt or how much the debt is. The servant knows the debt. He agrees with the master. Letter B, then, takes place because of that agreement. The master forgave his debt. In verse 28, it says in uh, verse 27, excuse me, out of pity for him. The king was moved with compassion, realizing that his servant was never going to be able to pay this debt off because it was so gigantic. It was an overwhelming amount of debt. A lifetime wouldn't have repaid it. And so, the master released him and forgave the debt with no conditions. It was a complete act of grace. Does that sound familiar to you? In the same manner, Jesus Christ offers to forgive the moral debt of any sinner who is willing to agree with him about their sin debt and by faith trust in Christ alone for their salvation. In addition to forgiveness, redeemed believers are granted access to the Lord through prayer, peace with him, eternal life, and many other privileges. However, those who don't agree with the Lord about their sin debt, end up paying for the debt themselves by spending eternity in hell. So the Lord offers unlimited forgiveness for our spiritual bankruptcy. Now, let's look at the second half of the story. Jesus is going to give us another example, starting in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. I underline that in my Bible too because you need to compare the hundred denarii to the 10,000 talents, all right? And so seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he could pay the debt. Here's number three on your outline. We want merciless justice for others, but merciful pardons for us. We want merciless justice for others, but merciful pardons for us. Remember I mentioned the significance of the denarii? Well... In verse 28, it says, this other servant owed the first servant 100 denarii. One denarii was approximately a day's wage for a foot soldier or a manual laborer. So this was, in essence, just over three months' work. It was was a debt that could be paid off. It's not super small, but... When you compare it to the first servant's debt, this second debt was tiny. Tiny. (laughs) The first debt was too big to count and to pay back. The second debt was countable and repayable. 100 denarii is certainly more than what you would find in a piggy bank, but compared to the first man's debt... It's pocket change. So notice in verse 29 now, the second servant acknowledges his debt just like the first servant did. He doesn't deny it or make excuses for it. Now, whereas in verses 23 to 27, how verses 23 to 27 illustrate the gospel, verses 28 to 30 illustrate the distorted view we have of our own sin when compared to the sins of others. That's what's happening here. Our inherited sin nature causes us to magnify other people's sin while we minimize ours. 
And as a result, we think the sin debt others owe us is worse than the sin debt we owe God. That's what Jesus is getting at here. We want merciless justice. Get them, Lord. They sinned against me. Hit them with lightning. Throw in an earthquake and a hurricane and a tornado too. Get them right now. But when we sin, oh, Lord, have mercy. Lord, please. Lord, if you just would let me off the hook this one time, I'll never do it again. And then the next day we do the same sin again. We want merciless justice for others, but we want merciful pardons for us. Why is this problematic? Well, let's read on and find out. Verses 31 to 35, as Jesus summarizes the parable. So when, this, when the, his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's number four on your outline. Unforgiving believers should fear for their salvation. Unforgiving believers should fear for their salvation. In verses 23 to 27, the gospel is illustrated. In verses 28 to 30, our distorted view of our own sin is illustrated. Now, in verses 31 to 35, we see illustrated how the Lord views forgiven believers who are unwilling to forgive others who are repentant. In verse 32, just a couple quick comments here. In verse 32, notice in your Bibles, I forgave you all that debt. Uh, interestingly, the word order in the Greek text literally reads like this, all that debt, comma, I forgave you. This is significant because in New Testament Greek, typically the words that are first and second in the sentence have the most weight put behind them. They have the most emphasis. And so in this case, the emphasis would be on all. So it could read like this, all that debt, I forgave you, and you can't forgive that teeny tiny debt that servant owes to you? All that debt, I forgave you, and then here's this little debt that you aren't willing to forgive. Oh. You've heard me say it before, if it convicts me, it's gonna, I'm sharing it so it convicts you and we can be convicted together, okay? I don't like being convicted by myself. So, verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to you. Jesus' summary statement here turns this story into a shocking horror story. This isn't the first time he said this either. The Lord says the same thing even more explicitly in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Again, I'll have Dave put it up on the screen behind me so you can see it. For the sake of time, we won't turn there. But Jesus said back in chapter 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, we've got to remember, let's apply the gospel here. How does the Lord forgive? He shows us our sin, we repent, he grants forgiveness. In the same way, we should show sin to our loved ones or brothers and sisters in Christ. When they repent, we transact forgiveness. 
So why is this important to the Lord, though? Why would he say this? I mean, this is, he's putting a lot, there's a lot he's, he's got riding on this here. I think it's because our, unwill, excuse me, our willingness to forgive someone else's sin shows that we've grasped how much more the Lord has forgiven us. On the other hand, anyone who is unwilling to forgive a repentant sinner does not understand the enormous debt of their own sin. So what's this parable really saying? Well, if I were to put it in one sentence, I think he's saying we have no right to withhold forgiveness from those who have apologized and repented for wronging us. We have no right to withhold forgiveness from those who have apologized and repented for wronging us. Now, there are more applications that I could pull out of this passage than I have time to share, but I have three for you. So here's the first one. See your own sin the way God does. Pretty obvious. Every professing follower of Jesus Christ must fully understand how offensive their sin is to God. Now that sounds like common sense theology, but you'd be surprised at how many professing Christ followers don't get that, actually. Sin is simply an act or thought committed or omitted that violates the word of God. So it's much more than just uh, Ten Commandments. It's a lot more than that. Your sin and my sin is what sent the innocent Son of God to die a gory, graphic, bloody death on a cross, being treated like a criminal when he was absolutely innocent. Now, coming to grips with the breadth and the depth of our sin and our rebellion against God initiates a domino effect of good things, such as fully appreciating God's grace and fully appreciating God's love and being able to forgive others. But you, you won't be willing to forgive others. You won't appreciate God's love. You won't fully grasp his grace if you think, eh, I'm not that bad a sinner, actually. You, you, won't, you won't get it. So, you will never be able to forgive others if you see their sins as capital offenses, but your sins as parking tickets. So see your own sin the way God does. And God's word makes it very clear, all our sin is a capital offense. All our sin, all yours, all mine, require the death penalty. Next, number two, stand ready to offer conditional, unlimited forgiveness. Stand ready to offer conditional, unlimited forgiveness. The crystal clear message of the New Testament is that Jesus stands ready to forgive anyone who repents of their sin and by grace alone through faith alone agrees to be reconciled to him. That is the gospel message. Sadly, many people choose not to take Jesus up on his offer. And as a result, they suffer the consequences of not being reconciled to him. Meaning, as I alluded to earlier, they have to pay their own sin debt with their own death and they spend eternity separated from God in hell, being tormented. In the same manner, we too, just like Jesus, we should stand ready to forgive anyone who has wronged us and repents of their sin so we can be reconciled with them. And if, and if they haven't repented yet, we stand ready to offer forgiveness to them. But it certainly begs the question, 
is there someone who has apologized or repented to you that you need to forgive? Like, like, is there someone you've been trying to make pay? You kinda, have you been trying to dole out your own type of justice by making them pay, but they've, they've apologized, they've apologized, apologized, they've repented, they want to be reconciled with you, but you're going, meh, because you've hardened your heart, and you want to make them pay with your own form of justice. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord about that. Number three, third application. And this addresses a big question a lot of people have. What, what do I do if they, they don't repent? What, what do I do if somebody doesn't apologize or no, they're not willing to apologize? If the offender won't repent, you apply Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. If the offender won't repent, you apply Romans 12, 17 and 21. We know from the Apostle Paul's New Testament letters that he had been wounded by people in ministry who were unrepentant. What's interesting to note is that he names some of them and there are others he doesn't name. Sometimes he just refers to a group. But what's also interesting is that Paul, for example, I was, I was thinking about all the different groups of false teachers that had hurt Paul and falsely accused him and so on and so forth. He doesn't set aside the truth of God's word and the gospel and go, eh, I'll forget whatever you did to me and I'll forget the truth of the gospel and I'll just go ahead and let's, let's just make up so we can all be unified and so that we can all get together and sing kumbaya and yet disagree on who Jesus is because we just want to be unified and have peace. He never does that. He stands firm on the truth and anybody who deviates from the truth, he's like, okay, see ya. Because peace at the expense of truth is not peace. And Paul knew that. So in Romans 17, excuse me, Romans 12, 17, 21, I wonder if it's very well what Paul learned from those experiences. Uh, and if you've lovingly brought sin to the attention of an offender who won't repent, Romans 12 says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it. This means you don't get even. It means you don't use passive-aggressive ways to make them pay. It means you don't tell the rest of the world how they wronged you. You keep your mouth shut. You don't you don't go around the church and say, hey, you know, this is just a prayer request. I just need to ask you to pray for so-and-so because they sinned against me. I just want to ask that you would pray with me that they'd be convicted by the Holy Spirit or struck by lightning. Just either, either or. Maybe hit by a train, car, or maybe a 747 lands on them. You know, just maybe some rare form of leprosy. Or, or they, could just, they would repent. If you would just pray, and I'm just, I shared this with my small group because I want them to be praying too. And I shared it with my ministry team that I, so I'm on the setup team, so I told them. And then I also, I shared it with my Facebook friends because I want to get as many people praying about this, you know, because I really am committed to getting reconciled with this person. No. No, 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 no. You get the point. Instead, you turn it over to the Lord and you treat them like an enemy, not how the world treats enemies. So Paul then, in Romans 12, 17, 21, quotes Jesus. Paul says, here's what you do. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Burning, hot, flaming coals that leave scars and remove hair. No, just... Seriously, he, he's saying, 
You create distance. You don't have to maintain the same level of intimacy. They need to feel the distance and the consequence of the sin. If they're unwilling to repent, and as Matthew 18 says, you've made multiple attempts to bring it to their attention. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. So you do your part, but if they're not willing to own it, you treat them like an enemy. You're not rude to them. You can be kind, but keep a distance, arm's length. If they need something, you can get it for them. But anything more than that, being rude, being mean, vindictive, um, smashing their cell phone by accident, anything like that, those are types of revenge. So you trust that because God is sovereign, he sees what happened to you, and because he is just... He's a just God who hates sin. He will avenge what happened to you in his perfect timing. He may be delaying consequences because he's giving them time to repent just like he's given you time to repent before. So we get to the bitterness issue. If the world says you have to forgive for yourself so you don't end up being bitter, well, then what's the biblical response to that? Well, Bitterness over sin is actually unrighteous anger that wants to take justice into its own hands. Bitterness is also a lack of trusting God. So, I'm going to have this on the screen behind me so you can write it down because I really want to make sure you get this. The antidote to bitterness is not cheap forgiveness, but rather trusting in the sovereignty and justice of God. The antidote to bitterness is not cheap forgiveness, but rather trusting in the sovereignty and justice of God. It's giving it to the Lord, knowing He will judge better than you ever could And he will dole out justice way better than you ever could. It's trusting that God is a fair, objective, unbiased referee who can discern whether there actually was sin that took place or whether you were just hypercritical and you're making up an offense that's really not a sin in the scriptures. See, the Lord knows the difference there, too. You could be wrong. So the antidote to bitterness is not cheap forgiveness, but rather trusting in the sovereignty and justice of God. A few years ago, I stumbled upon a, another news headline while I was reading the news online. I just had to click on it. You've heard the term probably clickbait. Well, this was a really good one. Um, headline was this, 25 years after bullying, Facebook poem prompts class of 1987 to make amends. The new story reads like this, a woman says a Facebook poem she posted about bullying has brought pleas for forgiveness from former classmates who tormented her at a Californian high school 25 years ago. The poem, which was posted by Linda, excuse me, Linda Frederick, age 42, of Rochester, New York, the poem reads like this. That little girl who came to school with the clothes she wore the day before, instead of asking why, you picked on her. The little girl who had to walk to school while others rode the bus, Instead of asking why, you picked on her. The little girl who had bruises and was dirty. Instead of asking why, you picked on her. The little girl who was always crying. Instead of asking why, you picked on her. Well, little did anyone know that Frederick's home life was as rough as her school life 
when she was growing up in California. After graduating a semester early from high school, she moved to Seneca Falls, New York to get away from everyone, dysfunctional family and bullying classmates. Now, some of those classmates want to make amends, and so they began reaching out to her after seeing her poem on Facebook. Frederick said that after she posted the poem, she began receiving phone calls and emails and Facebook messages from former classmates apologizing for how she was treated. One male classmate, whom she hadn't spoken to since graduation, called her up, apologized in tears, and then they continued to speak and cry together for an hour on the phone. A female classmate also reached out to her, who uh, actually never bullied her, but instead apologized for not stepping in and intervening to stop it which touched Linda Frederick as well. So Frederick said her response to her repentant classmates was simple. Christ forgave me, so I forgive you. The story even gets better. So the Orange Glen high school class of 1987 took up a collection of more than $800 to cover the cost of plane tickets for Frederick to fly back to Escondido, California, for her class's 25th reunion. The Lord forgives repentant sinners who forgive repentant sinners. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, you know that this topic is a sensitive one. We all have wounds on our hearts, some of which have just turned into scars. But time hasn't healed them. We all have people in our lives that have wronged us or sinned against us but have refused to repent or apologize. Father, please, would you give us the grace and the wisdom on how to deal with those wounds. And Lord, if there is confrontation, loving, gentle confrontation that needs to take place, please, would you, would you just show, show those who need to do it how to do it? Show, show them how to walk through Matthew 18, 15 to 17. And Father, for those who maybe are guilty of hurting others, but have not repented, not apologized, would you gently convict them, help them to see it, and help them to see why it's important to own it and go back and say they're sorry and to request forgiveness. And Lord, there may be others here who have someone in their life who has apologized, they have repented, but because of maybe the depth of the wound, maybe just their own spiritual struggle and their own walk with you, they've, they've withheld forgiveness when it is due. Please, Father, would you gently convict and nudge them to grant the pardon, to let go, to reenact the gospel. Father, please, finally, would you you help us to be the kind of church that's different? There are so few churches that practice this, that practice biblical peacemaking, that lovingly confront sin, deal with it quickly, and transact forgiveness embrace and grow and love together. It's so, so needed. 
Would you help us, Lord, as a church to, to demonstrate that for our community? And we know in doing so, that'll glorify you and it'll reenact the gospel. Sin happens, it's exposed, there's repentance, and forgiveness is granted. We thank you, Lord, uh, most of all for doing that for us. For those that are here that know you personally through your son, Jesus Christ, thank you that you showed us our sin by convicting us. We repented and owned our sin, agreeing with you. Then you granted a pardon, forgiveness for the debt we accrued. Thank you, Lord, for showing us how to do that. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.